0: Good afternoon, it's 12.30, let's get rolling. Um, I think there's any housekeeping announcements or anything. Uh, as usual, welcome, glad you're here. Uh, every week we're going to provide you a hot meal over the winter cold months. So come, tell your friends, co-workers, bring them. Uh, We've got plenty of room, plenty of food, and also remember to um, all the tips, donations in the box. They go to the ladies in the back. They fix this food for us every week. So the best way to show your appreciation for the meal is to speak with your wallet to them. <laughs> in a way to bless them. They do, they do a good job. And they do do a good job. Uh, we have plenty of chocolate here afterwards. So those of you that aren't here that are watching on the camera, look at this fresh made chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> dark chocolate, too, so it fights <laughs> cancer or something. I don't know. It fights something. Yeah. Aren't you supposed to just drink red wine and eat dark chocolate? And, uh, <laughs> sounds like a plan? That's what we'll have in the new creation. Okay. So we're in Leviticus. We started Leviticus this year. And we talked last week. You can catch the uh, podcast or video if you missed it. But Leviticus is... So Genesis and Exodus, narrative. Almost all narrative. Exodus introduces a law. God starts to give his laws. It introduces worship, the function of the tabernacle. God's tent, this portable Mount Sinai. Leviticus then gets into the specifics. How do you use this tent? How do you use this worship? How do you do this thing called covenant? Because you you can't lose sight of the big picture. Israel was called into a covenant relationship with God. Now, a covenant relationship, we don't have a lot of covenants in our day and age. But a covenant relationship, the closest thing we have today is marriage. It's a covenant. It's public, it's binding, it's spiritual. um, It's supposed to be permanent. Like, all of these things are what a covenant means. A covenant is a relationship that is literally in the ancient Near East, signed in blood. And it's usually the blood of a sacrifice that is offered to the deity of the respective parties of the covenant. And then the the mindset being, now we are to be held accountable to this covenant by the deities who have witnessed this sacrificial meal and this blood symbolism and all of that. So what God does in scripture is he condescends, he steps into the culture into which he's speaking, and he adopts or he uses, he pulls from some of their cultural practices that would have meaning to them at the time. They would be very valid. So today, if God were gonna show up and do something in a tangible, visible way, that everybody would understand what he was doing, there might be something involving him signing his name on a piece of paper. Because that's what we do, we sign our names on a contract. And that's binding, like that's legally binding in a court. So God might do something like that. Um, In the ancient Near East, it was this covenant meal, this sacrificial act, and that's what God had done to bind himself to Israel, and to bind Israel to himself. Why? Because he likes Israel? Not really. In Deuteronomy, he's going to go out of his way to tell Israel over and over, I didn't make this covenant because I like you. I mean, over and over he will say that to Israel. So that's not being anti-Israel. That's being biblical. He'll say this. I didn't make this covenant because I like you. I made this covenant. And he does like him. He does love them. He'll talk about that in the prophets and stuff. But... The underlying reason he made the covenant because he made a promise to their forefather Abraham that through one of Abraham's line of descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed by God. God is in the business of reaching the world from the very beginning. That's not a New Testament thing. It's not a Great Commission thing. That's a Genesis thing. From Genesis 12, as we've seen, all the way through, God's promise, we am going to reach the world through your descendants. And it gets... There's twists and turns throughout Genesis as we saw, and then in Exodus, God's people are in bondage. What's God gonna do? How's he gonna continue to keep the promise he made to Abraham when Abraham's offspring are in bondage as a nation of slaves? So then he brings them out of Egypt in this mighty act whereby he judges the gods of Egypt while also liberating his people to serve him rather than Pharaoh. So they're out of one slavery and into another type of slavery, but it's the only true slavery that's worth serving under, which is slavery to God. And then he creates in them a people, or he creates of them a people, a nation, their, their national birthday. And so now that they're a nation, he wants them to be a different type of nation than the other nations. That's his goal. Israel is the vehicle. Israel is the, the conduit by which God will communicate with the world on a worldwide scale in the in, where we are right now. That's the goal, that's the calling of Israel. They're to reflect, what it means to be in relationship with God to a watching world. In the midst of a world that has turned and gone the route of all kinds of paganism. So in the darkest of the dark, in the worst of the worst, right in the middle of this place called Canaan, Israel is going to be God's holy people. They're gonna be in the world, but not of the world. They're gonna be sanctified, but they're gonna be among the nations. This is, the, this is, this sounds very New Testament because surprise, the New Testament didn't make it up. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God's people from the beginning were to be in the world, not of the world. They were to be sought, they were to be light. That's what Jerusalem will be called the city set on the hill. That's what Jesus would say, you're the salt of the world, or the light of the world, the salt of the earth. All that is imagery of Israel. When Jesus comes to the New Testament, he's calling Israel back to what God intended Israel to be in the first place. And knowing that, of course, he being the one true Israelite is the only one who will be able to fully do all that the law commands and that God requires. And that's okay because that's how God intended to be in the first place so then Jesus can become the new Israel around whom his people dwell. Just like God tabernacled in the tabernacle, literally in the midst of his people, John 1 will tell us that the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelled among us. Jesus will now dwell in the midst of his people. So then when we go back to Leviticus, what we're reading are the shadows and the types of all of the things that Jesus will, when he comes on the scene, will ultimately fulfill in himself. He'll, it, we'll see all these strands in the Old Testament, all these different strands of thought and of theology and of worship, and then it's like Jesus, when he comes on the scene, will gather all those strands together and weave them into the new covenant centered around himself. So as we're reading these sacrifices, we're reading how God wanted Israel to behave as an ancient Near East 14th, 13th century people in the world, surrounded by pagan nations that did a lot of these same type of things. God wants them to do it, but to put a a uniquely covenant spin on it. So for instance, when, when ancient Near East people brought sacrifices to the temple of their gods, they would bring it as literal food for their gods they believed in the ancient East, various religions uh, they believed the gods relied on people to feed them the gods could do everything else they could do all kinds of stuff but they needed people were created to feed and to serve the gods so the gods in some ways depended on the worshipers to bring them their food and that kept the gods happy, and that made the gods want to bless the worshipers with the things that the gods could do, like send rain, give victory in battle, bless their their fertility, their wounds, all these things. So it was this symbiotic reciprocal relationship. Well, God, when he sets up his sacrifices, the first five chapters of Leviticus we're gonna introduce the main five ways that Israel was to bring offerings and sacrifices. These are going to be the main five types of sacrifices that Israel is going to bring as their regular part of worship. And the kicker is, they're not going to bring it into the Holy of Holies. That's where God dwells. That's what you would do if you were pagan. You'd bring it into the temple or where the, where the idol of the God was and present it before that God. Instead, all of the sacrifices and all of the gifts for Israel are going to be given in the outer court, on the altar, where everyone can see what's going on. There's no secret magic. There are gonna be no incantations. There's whole books from Egypt and other ancient Near East cultures of these rites and these rituals that you have to say. You have to pronounce certain words right. You have to say it at the right time in the right way, otherwise the sacrifice, the gift, isn't received. There's none of that in Israel's sacrifices. In fact, in these first uh, first chapter and the first five chapters, nothing is even said at all. Some Jewish scholars have called it the sacrifice of silence. First one because there's nothing said. No magic words. Instead, what we have is this God inviting Israel to do something that they're already familiar with. Sacrifices and burnt offerings go all the way back to Genesis 8. People gave. It would, it, for us, it's weird to think of giving a burnt offering to God. It's just weird. For them, it's weird not to. Every culture would know, well, of course you do a burnt offering. Of course, it's it's like in the DNA of humanity, of the ancient Near East. You you offer something to the God, and you do it through burning it, through turning it into smoke so that it rises up to the presence of the God. That's just normal. That's how you do it. You know, like we look at people that they went to celebrate the 4th of July without fireworks. We go, wow, how do you, that's weird. Of course you have fireworks, but why? Because you do. It's just how we do it, right? Yeah. Celebratory. Well it's exploding, you know, bombs in the sky. How's that celebratory? It just is. like there's certain cultural things that are just normal to us that other cultures would look at as weird. So flip the script now, look at that culture and, and, and know that for them sacrifices were normal. They were they were it was a given you had a God, you sacrifice to the God. So what God does, Yahweh, he's gonna step into that. He's not gonna say, I don't, don't give me sacrifices, don't me. he's gonna say, yeah, do the sacrifices, here's how you're gonna do them. Here's what we're gonna consist of. So verse one, the Lord called to Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This is in the tabernacle now, God is speaking to Moses, just as the tabernacle's been set up. Exodus 40 just happened. And Leviticus 1.1 picks right up. The first word we talked about last week, the first word of the book is and, because it carries right on with, Leviticus, with Exodus 40. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Offering is the word, and here there's different words for offering, but this particular word for offering is, is, is from the verb karah, is korban. Jesus will allude to it in the New Testament. He talks about something being forebanned, meaning dedicated to God. But it's a word for gift, and it comes from the verb karab, which means to draw near. So this is the means by which, the first sacrifice, this is the means by which people are going to draw near to God. There's going to be this approach to God, and it's going to be through their offerings, through their gift, their sacrifice. But God says, first of all, it's got to be from the herd or the flock. It can't be a wild animal. It's not going to be something that you just happened upon. It's not. This has to be from your herd or your flock. Israel is a pastoral, agrarian society. They are herdsmen. That's their currency. That's their livelihood. So it's got to come from that. God does It, it can't be an offer, A sacrifice can't be a sacrifice if it doesn't cost the giver anything. So that's the first thing. It's got to be from their herd or their flock. Then, verse three. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, then he's to offer a male without defect. So that's the second thing. It's got to be perfect. without No blemishes, no lame animal, no, well, this one's off-colored, so we can't use its fur for normal stuff, so we'll give it to God. We can't, this one, and it's got kind of a limb. It's one of his legs is messed up, and it was birthed wrong, and something happened. We'll just give that one to God. We'll keep the good ones to sell. We can't do that. God says right up front, you're going to give me a gift? You give me the best. That principle that's undervised that. Carries through when we give to God something, we should give Him the best, not the leftovers. So then he goes on to say, uh, he must. He's got seven things that the offerer has to do. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, entrance to the tabernacle, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So the first thing he's got to present it. Number two, he's to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He's got to lay his hand. In the text, literally, it's 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 elsewhere that word means to lean on. It's got to be this, and scholars have debated what it means, and the general consensus is, it's two things. One is, it's a way of identifying with this animal. This is my animal. I'm bringing this as my gift, like leaning on it. The other thing is, uh, people say, it also communicates a transference. Of guilt. This animal is going to stand in my place. This animal is going to take my place because it's for atonement. It will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement form. The word atonement is kafar. That's where we get the word Yom Kippur from. Kafar. It means to cover. The basic meaning of kafar or kippur or kippur with different vowelizations of it is to cover something. So this is, a, the, the, the concept of atonement in Israel was your sins, your, 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 your commonness, your non-holiness is being covered. There's a covering that's happening. There's a shielding that's going on that's separating your commonness and your sinfulness and your brokenness from God's holiness, God's perfection, and God's burning purity. This, this kapur, this, this, this uh, shielding, insulating almost, is what's happening. This is the base offering of Israel, and there'll be others, but this is like the most common type of offering in the Old Testament. And, and what it's doing at its core is it's making it so that God and humanity can exist together without sin that's torn them apart, all the way back in Genesis 2, without that coming in and ruining things. So this is what's happening as he leans his head on the animal, he's presenting it. It It'll be acceptable. Verse five: He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. The word word "slaughter," you know, we think of like uh, stabbing or you know, Friday the 13th or something. Slaughterhouse, right? (laughs) But it's 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 very actually it's it's not a violent ritual. It's slitting the throat, cutting the two carotid arteries. The animal bleeds out almost immediately. It's it is literally the most painless way to kill an animal is to to sever, to cut the throat, to slaughter it. And that's what you'll see in Leviticus and elsewhere in Torah. God upholds, even though the animal is being killed, it's being killed in a way that upholds the value of life and the purpose of life and the the, and the, the, the sanctity and the goodness of creation. Now remember this is a this is a tribal agrarian society. They ate these animals. These animals were their livelihood. It's like if you go to Mongolia today and you live with herdsmen. Or go in the desert of uh, the Middle East and live with Bedouins. They love their animals. They love their animals. And they eat their animals. <laughs> and there's no contradiction between the two. Now in our society where there's been a separation, and there's we, we've been separated from the grisliness of taking animal life, it, We're shocked by it, and rightly so, because a lot of the ways that we kill animals, God is not cool with, FYI. God's not cool with a lot of the ways that we kill animals as a people. And that's a whole other lesson, but in scripture here, the sacrifice, one, the person presents it, the person slaughters it. After the person slaughters it, uh, Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood, they drain the blood, they bring the blood, and sprinkle it or splash it against the altar on all sides of the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that's on the altar. He's to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, here's, here's the, the newsflash for a lot of people. Every time it says he in the text, he is to, it's the worshipper. You didn't just bring your animal, give it to the priest, and stand there and watch. In fact, the priest did not do the dirty work. You did The worshiper would cut the throat of the animal. The worshiper would skin and flay and quarter the animal. The worshiper would wash the legs of the animal and the entrails would gut the animal and take that out and wash the intestines and all of that. The worshiper was intimately involved. This was not a priestly duty. The priests were to stoke the fire They were to take the blood and do the ritual atonements with the blood and then they were to take the pieces after the animal had been processed and put it on the altar in a certain way. It was a tag team, (laughs) Worshipper and priest together in the ancient. That's something that goes over a lot of people's heads. That's something I didn't even pick up on for a long time. But in the religion of Israel, the people have as much responsibility as the priests because the nation itself was to be a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So there was a divide between clergy and laity. It's not that that's unbiblical. And there was certain duties that clergy had to do that laity didn't have to do, that's not unbiblical. And there was providing for the material means of the clergy by the gifts of the laity, that's not unbiblical. What was unbiblical was the laity just coming and being passive observers. Just coming to service, showing up, then let's go out to eat together. That's the worship team does there. So then what does that tell us in our new covenant setting about how our worship experience should be? And That's where you can ponder that on your own. But in this place, it was an intimate and, a, and it was a personal fear. You got involved. Your hands had blood on them. And that's a key thing. The people's hands, not just the priests, but the people's hands had blood on them. The, the temple was a slaughterhouse, a tabernacle, yeah. When you say the people, though, not everybody could be doing that. They wouldn't even have enough time. The people who brought, the person who brings the gift. Yeah, that was probably the head of the household. It would have been the elder of the household at mm-hmm. first, and then as they grow up, it would have been the next. If you were a widow, you would have done it. Um, it was just whoever's bringing. Now, not all at once. These sacrifices happen every day and on Sabbath twice a day. Er, twice a day, every day, on Sabbath there was two of each. So there's all kinds of stuff later that will regulate when this happens. But the point is that it was, again, it wasn't just show up and watch. You're bringing your sacrifice and you are taking this life and offering it to God on the altar in a highly symbolic way. Of this sacrifice, all of it would be washed and prepared just as if it was going to be eaten. You know, if you butcher an animal, you skin it, because the the outer skin is like the protective layer, right? That's where all the bugs and dirt and parasites and everything. And then you you cut up the insides and you wash the insides. You take the entrails out. Why? Because the entrails contain the stuff that the animal ate. So stuff that came from the outside into the animal, it would be in the entrails. So you have to get rid of that. You have to wash that out. Wash out all the, literally wash out all the crap inside of it so that you could eat the thing. You had to do all that stuff in order to eat it. In this sacrifice, they're doing all of that, but they don't eat it. The only thing of this sacrifice that remains is the skin. The priests get to keep the skin and use it, and that would have been used for everything, you know, all kinds of daily use, uh, skins of animals, from clothing to vessels to implements, all that. But all of the stuff, including the good stuff, the fat portion was seen as the good part, that's the flavorful part, that's like the really, That's that's what you want to preserve, even that burned on the altar. All of it was devoted to, to God, even though it had gone through this careful preparation as if people were going to eat it. So it was this very extravagant way to give something completely to God that's almost, from our perspective, or from an outside perspective, would look incredibly wasted. These are This is your livelihood. This is your animal. You're taking the best of your animal, and you're preparing it, and then you're just burning it? You know, like think of Scrooge McDuck or somebody lighting a cigar with five hundred dollar bills or whatever. Like that's how you know. It's like that's extravagance. That's just ridiculous. Why would you do that? And and we're quick immediately to jump on that and then to go. That's just so wasteful. Why would God want that? God would rather you take that and feed your family with that animal. Blah blah, 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 But remember, remember right before Jesus was crucified, Mary came to him. <coughs> she had some perfume that was worth like a couple of years of wages. And she broke it and she poured it out on his feet and she anointed him and washed his hair. And who jumped on her case? Judas. (laughs) He said, whoa, 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 this could have been sold and given this money to the poor. And Jesus said, you're missing the point. What she did was an act of incredible extravagance and it will be repeated from now on everywhere because of that. So it wasn't wasteful because it was given to the one who owns the capital of a thousand hills. The one who controls resources and lack and scarcity. The one the only one. Now if it was done for anyone else, it would be incredibly wasteful and undeserved and extravagant. But it was given to God, not for human use. Right? Yep. Sin, Sure, yes. Yeah, that should be us on that altar? Yeah that's the atonement part. In order to have fellowship with God, there's this transaction that takes place where something has to bear the brunt of the sinfulness. Something has to bear the curse of the sin, the the, the wrath of God's holiness. And God sets it up in a way that it's going to be this thing that also represents a fellowship meal and a sharing of communion and all of it. But you can't take the sacrifices and pull out and say, this is what this represents. full stop. All of the sacrifices have nuances of flavor and meaning and layers of symbolism going on. Because, again, it's not the mechanics that God is as concerned about. It's the whole thing being done in an in a, in a, in a attitude of worship. It's the whole thing. So he goes on to say, if the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, either sheep or goats. So the first one was cattle. Uh, or, if they're going to offer sheep or goats, which is slightly of lesser value, he's to offer a male without defect. He's to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. Heir, and sons, of the priest, shall sprinkle his blood against the altar on all sides. He's to cut it into pieces. The priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that's on the altar. He's to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, in other words, everything that's touched the normal contaminated world, physically and spiritually. Uh, he's. Uh, he is to wash the inner parts the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of it and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So you don't have to bring a cow. It's an expensive animal. You may not can afford it. You can bring a sheep or a goat, and it's the same thing, same procedure, same meaning. But you can't afford a sheep or goat? Verse 14, if the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he's to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, bring the head off and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He's to remove the crop of the intestines with its contents and throw it on the east side of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not severing it completely, not quartering, cutting it up. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. God made a way in Israel for everyone, rich or poor, to be able to present an offering. When Jesus' parents came to the temple, they gave two birds, two doves, because they were poor. They couldn't afford to give the, the normal sacrifice of a lamb or a goat or a cattle. And so this first offering, this is the burnt offering, it's entirely given to God. The rest of the offerings, the next four that we're going to read about in the coming weeks, parts of those are going to be given to the priests. Are going to be eaten with the worshiper together. That's how this is. How, this whole system is how Israel will get its food, right? If Israel wants to serve some really good stew like this, it will have involved animals being slaughtered at the altar, most likely, because that was the general way in which the, the economy of the Israelites got. It process their meat. Why are the priests doing the work this time though? They're doing it, they're taking the bird, they're taking the feathers, they're doing all the work no, no they're not. It's he is. The priests are taking the blood and they're doing the things. But go back and read it. It's still cooperative. Look at verse sixteen. He is to remove the crop. Yeah. The he the is the worshipper. Said the priest here. You're the, priest the priest takes off the feather, it chain. says the priest takes the intro, the priest pinches his head off, does all that. Uh, the priest drains the blood, Takes yeah. his head off and drains the blood. And then the rest is he. If it says priest in your translation, a, that's an interpretation. But it's still, from everything that's gone before, it's a collaborative effort. Um, but there are things the priest will do that the worshiper won't, and vice versa. Particularly things involving the blood the priests have a... Preeminent role in that. However, here's here's the forest and trees moment. When you're looking at the sacrifices, there's some Christians that have gone in and tried to ferret out every little detail and what every single thing means. The fact that the animal is not torn in this way, but it's done this way, that's symbolic of how Jesus will come. So you're all maybe, maybe there's something to that, and that's where study can help enlighten, and that's where we can see details. But in general, the things that are intentional are put in the text, the things that are tangential are left kind of unresolved. So the, the, the two responses that you want to avoid when we're reading in Southern Leviticus is, one, don't let your eyes glaze over and you just blah, 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 sacrifice what's next, All right? That's the typical way of reading it. But the other extreme is don't get like tied in on every single detail, and like this has to mean this, what does this mean? What does this symbolize? because that can become a never-ending maze of rabbit trails. Uh, History's filled with interpreters that tried to do all that. In general, you wanna stay between those two. You wanna read this and say, okay, what's going on here? What's this system, this first sacrifice, what is it? Before Israel gets any other part of their corporate worship told to them, the first one is, this is how atonement as a whole will be made. It'll involve you giving me the best that you have and you giving it to me completely. You don't keep any of it. Give it all to me. I'm God, I brought you out of Egypt. This is the first thing you're going to do. And that's an act of faith and it's an act of trust because this is your livelihood. These animals are your means of living. And it's a big deal in the ancient Near East. If you're a survivalist and you're out in the woods or something, every calorie you get is a gift. Everything is precious. Watch man vs. wild with bear drills. He'll be like all oh, happy because he finds a worm. He's like, ah, oh, calories, right? It's disgusting. But this is that's the kind of world. You know, there's no convenience stores, there's no grocery stores. So you're giving something as precious as your best animal to mm-hmm. God is a huge act of trust if you depend on it. However, it's not all that God cares about. This week, we don't have time to read it now, but read Psalm 50. Read Psalm 50, 5 for God's view of the sacrifices when they're done as a ritual. And then flip to the next chapter and read Psalm 51 and what God says he actually wants, not just the, the ritual. And then for the ultimate, so here's your three, I'll never give homework, I'm giving homework this time. Read Psalm 50, read Psalm 51, and then the last one, read Isaiah chapter 1. And see what God thinks about a nation or a people an Israel, covenant nation, that's doing the deeds, doing the things right, but then their lives don't mirror the, the, the moral underlying covenant that the whole thing is meant to prop up anyway. So read Isaiah 1 to see what it looks like when someone takes the ritual and divorces it from covenant morality, and you'll see how God looks at the sacrifices then. So we're out of time. We'll pick that up next week. Uh, Come back next week, Leviticus 2. If you want some food, we've still got some left over. And have a great week.